Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet rose of history, Neil. How's it going? Uh, good. I feel like it's a, an interesting presidential history day, because we have like an unprecedented presidential thing happened today but yeah. i don't really want to get into any of I that have no clue what you're talking about <laughs> pretty weird yeah for anybody listening yeah this is like the i think it just came out like an hour ago that one of our presidents was indicted after they were in office so weird times i feel like he was already going to be in the history books just because of for too many everything reasons. for too many yeah. reasons but now forever definitely it's going to be like a trivia question. Of I don't think it's going to stop. This isn't the last thing to me. I don't know when it's going to be like, oh, he's done making history, right? <laughs> he's definitely going to be a trivia, like, uh, like Nixon <laughs> or, you know, what was the president that had wooden teeth? That type of trivia that embarrassed yeah. as definitely as going to be. What president is was fingerprinted and there's a mugshot of him available online? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I... So I, I could easily see like a hundred years from now, like him still being like the most trivia president, probably. So many like, you know, oh, this is new. This is new. Oh, what do we do here? <laughs> sort of things. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get there a lot more. Um, uh, maybe, like, yeah, and, and, the, and it'll be interesting <laughs> what he does on his second term. So we have oh, that to look forward to. Don't, please don't. I will. I can't. I can't do it. Oh, again. my dude, it's happening. This None is a freight train down. You think this is going to hurt him? This is actually going to bolster his poll. I hope you're wrong. It's the, it's the big government trying to stop him. It's the swamp. I'm, Look at the corruption. I'm, DeSantis, DeSantis looks like a legit contender. So, DeSantis is not going to stand in, that, in, in the way of that freight train, my dude. I mean, I, I think that's a lot of people's hope, but I don't know. I mean, even though, you know, He's yeah. not a good person either. So last time around, we had a nice, fun side episode in where Neil and I traded off uh, folk uh, folk hero stories and what we thought uh, meant to the society today and in the past. Uh, but prior to that, um, Dwight D, not LGBT, continued his hot streak, not taking down not only one, not only two, but three presidents at the same time. In a hell of a hell in the cell cage, worthy of set of WrestleMania that is coming up in a few days as well. Um, as of this recording, now now that Dwight D has just essentially cemented himself as your favorite president, like nobody's gonna drop him. Who are you gonna mm. sacrifice at his feet again? Well, this is this is a heavy hitter today. Um, and you know, everybody knows who this guy is. And so it's going to be exciting. We have Andrew Jackson. Good old hickory, according to your text. <laughs> In the music place. The year is 1829. The Democratic Party of the United States is officially organized. The first American Indian newspaper in the United States is published, named Cherokee Phoenix. 
Bahia Blanca, present-day Argentina, is founded. And we have wars all across the globe. We have the Greek War of Independence, the Argentinian Civil War, the Russo-Turkish War, the Grand Colombia-Peru War, and we also have a failed invasion in Paraguay by the Venezuelan government. But 1828, United States presidential election, Andrew Jackson is elected as the president of the United States, defeating incumbent John Quincy Adams in a landslide, according to Wikipedia. Okay, so here we go with a pretty major president today, and Andrew Jackson. We are now more than two years into our podcast, you said. Can you believe that? Two years? Yeah, that's well, actually, that's wild. Yeah, and, and though we are just now getting to a president who probably could hold the title, you know, like maybe as the most unstoppable politician in American history, we are giving him just one episode, all right? He's not going to rise to the very world-renowned, very prestigious level of getting a two-parter of himself on this podcast. Wow. Um, <laughs> though, if we had Shots decided... fired. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, and you don't make the cut, uh, Jackson. But, you know, if we decided that we wanted to talk about Jackson, I think, earlier in the podcast, then I definitely could understand giving him a two-parter. But the thing is, is that we've already talked about this guy so much. You know, he's one of the focal points of our John Quincy Adams and Martin Van Buren episodes, and even features pretty heavily in John Tyler and James Polk. You know, Jackson, like many of the founders, was everywhere throughout 65 years of American history. The guy never stopped putting his imprint on our politics. And I think in order for us to get for in order for us to have a more productive back and forth today, we need to somewhat look beyond a framework of covering what's good and what's bad about what he did and putting it into context, but more so capture the extent to how much the country has embrace Jackson's character and legacy that you know you can still see it so clearly in how Americans think about politics today. No one before him, not even, you know, Washington and Jefferson had the cult of personality that Jackson had. I mean, a whole new political party, which is now our oldest, was formed just to get this guy into the presidency. You know, without him, the Democratic Party does not even come into existence. And, you know, his support doesn't stem from any kind of romantic idealism of his own political philosophy necessarily you know he's not an author of any legislation or document that's still relevant to american law in 2023 you know no one is going to quote jackson in a political theory poli-sci class but you know when it comes to how people vote though you know no one really cares about that kind of stuff anyway you know most people aren't thinking deeply about how our government can be restructured to you know make it work better you know from my perspective one of the most you know, important variables for determining individual political success all comes down to you know, whether people are attracted to your character. And he's you know, really distinctive as a president to amass a huge political following almost exclusively off his personality. Now, usually presidents get help elsewhere from either their own party or world events that make incumbent parties unpopular. You know, there have been you know, other presidents who have thrived in their careers from leaning purely into character when you think about people like Teddy or... Even Trump. But often what you'll find in common with their rise in political popularity is an overlooked populace that has an outside grievance towards a government that is heavily favoring the rich and wealthy. You know, for Teddy, he became the power in the height of globalization, or sorry, in the height of industrialization and income inequality. 
know, for Trump, the height of globalism and corporate billionaire slash, you know, profits. And so in these environments, the public often turns to politicians who are as angry or cynical as they are. Jackson's rise is unique when compared to those two, though, because he actually does so much more to create the conditions for someone like him to gain so much popularity. You know, if there's one thing that people know or could assume about Jackson, you know, even today is that he's not really a nice guy, nor did he try to pretend to be. You know, he's someone who held a lot of grudges. He was vengeful and distrustful, especially the aristocracy and, you know, most notably violent and brutal towards towards his opponents. So it's really how he makes a name for himself nationally through his ambitions in the Tennessee militia and U.S. Army. (laughs) This would be far too simplistic of an episode, though, to understand Jackson just as, you know, a mean military guy. He's got much more of him that allows him to essentially control the whole country for a decade. You know, but to start off, if we want to dig into into more of like the cruelty piece, then you can see how Jackson develops a comfort for showing cruelty towards his opponents when you read about his childhood. You know, he was born in 1767, just eight years before the Revolutionary War broke out, and he was living in the Carolina region at the time. His father died a few weeks before he was born, and but you know he still had his mother and two brothers to help raise him. But by the time the war breaks out, you know everyone goes off to fight as soon as they're old enough. You know including Jackson, who volunteers to fight at just 14 years old. One of his brothers died in battle from heat exhaustion, and a couple years later, Andrew and his older brother, you know, were captured by the British and taken to a prison camp where they're not, you know, treated well and suffer from, you know, malnutrition. And so his last brother would die from that experience after contracting smallpox. So Jackson, you know, only has his mother left after he's released, but then she also died from cholera shortly after her efforts to, you know, nurse prisoners of war back to health. Before Jackson even becomes an adult, he watches his, you know, whole immediate family die within years from the war, which obviously became, sorry, which obviously becomes one traumatic experience after another to go through only as a teen. And on top of that, you know, watching people die in battle and being a prisoner of war. And so you can maybe understand how someone who goes through all that would feel less sympathy for people he puts through suffering while he's an adult. So his experiences as a teen, you know, certainly motivated his early political career in advocating for the nation to adopt, you know, an anti-British agenda. And so this, of course, made him a loyal Democrat Republican and hypercritical of the Federalist Party in the 1790s. And wildly, you know, he's a relevant politician by that time, even though he doesn't become a military general until 15 to 20 years later, and then president until 1829. You know, this is what I mean when I said that, you know, he was everywhere. He was already elected to the House of Representatives in 1976. Or sorry, 1796. How old is he? In that year, he's only, yeah, 29 years old. He was born in 1767. Yeah. He's a young politician. Right. He's the first member to ever represent Tennessee as they gained statehood just in that same year. You know, he started swinging for the fences and trying to make a name for himself early, criticizing the president, you know, publicly as he was taking office. And, you know, not just any president, but George Washington, of all people. Um, Jackson accused Washington of deliberately removing Democratic Republicans from the executive and favoring pro-British policies. So, you know, it's a pretty bold thing to do considering the universal halo Washington had at the time with the greater American public. You know, it didn't lead to anything, to anything substantial, but 
showed early signs that Jackson had no fear in making political with him. Now, you know, for anyone who has some familiarity with Jackson's history, you'll know that he's not someone who's great at compromising. Nor was he, like, passionate about being part of a governmental body that he had little control over. He was a House rep, you know, for not even a year before he was appointed to the Senate, and then decided to leave it all behind just, you know, within six months into being a senator and went back home to Tennessee. So while that might not make sense for someone who has high political aspirations, it became clear to Jackson that, you know, that was not how he wanted to, you know, find his way through politics. So he didn't want, you know, he didn't want to have to play the confrontational congressman, you know, for years and years outside of his home where he built his life. And so he returned with a plan to get involved locally, you know, both politically and, and militarily. At this point, his political views and, you know, what motivated him were fairly cemented. Jackson comes from humble beginnings, but, you know, accumulate, accumulates wealth, you know, first through obtaining a decent education and then, you know, working his way into being able to afford an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of, amount of land. You know, the property he, you know, obtained in which he named the Hermitage led to his embrace of participating in, you know, the cotton trade by turning his property into a, a cotton plantation, which then led to his purchase of, you know, what will be hundreds of slaves over his lifetime. And furthermore, at this point, he makes it well known that, you know, he's more than sympathetic to drive, or, to, you know, really for efforts, that is, to drive out Native Americans from surrounding territories and becomes, a, you know, commander of the Tennessee militia with this goal in mind. As he's building his wealth in Tennessee in the early 1800s, he's also meeting and hosting like-minded friends about, you know, how he could, you know, how he'd like to see the country develop. One of these friends that visits him is none other than Aaron Burr, um, you know, who came to Tennessee just after killing Alexander Hamilton in their duel. Um, Fresh off the boat. Right. <laughs> and like something I didn't expect. He got a teardrop. He got a teardrop tat on his face. He has his strides. Everybody knows he's a natural-born killer. Yeah, and it's weird that like Jackson, knowing this, would even host him if he has these kind of big political aspirations. But you know, Burr at this point is probably well aware that his you know political career is over, right? You know, you can't exactly come back after murdering the guy who like designed the U.S. economic system. You know, he he had a plan though to try to obtain power by occupying a you know, border, you know, colonial territory, and that territory being Spanish-controlled Florida. You know, he sold his plan to Jackson that, you know, it could be a U.S.-led effort rather than, like, a rebel independent army, and, you know, at first, Jackson was all in. He even prepared the Tennessee militia to march into the state in hopes, you know, that he could take the territory for the U.S. Eventually, though, you know, he would discover that Burr's plan was actually aimed at starting a whole new country in Florida. Rather than, <laughs> right. Rather I mean, than, at this point, I think he succeeded because Florida at this point is definitely a whole different country. Right, right. And like, I guess that could have happened if people were determined enough and Burr had enough backing, right? Because the U.S. wasn't exactly, I mean, they were interested in it becoming a state, but it was still very much under like Spanish control. And so when he discovered that, you know, once he once Jackson discovered that fact, you know, um, you know, he was able to barely save himself from being accused of treason for having documentation that he wanted to land for the U.S. Burr, though, you know, was arrested and put to trial and eventually acquitted of it. But that was actually also through the help of Jack, through the help of Jackson. So 
and story we're not going to get into, but really interesting. Um, you know, Jackson's motivations to take down colonial powers encroaching on the U.S. border made up, you know, much of who he was all throughout his part of life. And, um, you know, the War of 1812 comes along, you know, when it does come along, it is everything that Jackson has been waiting for. Another war against the nation, you know, he most despised, which was Great Britain, stemming back from his experiences as a kid, you know, fighting them 30 years earlier. Jackson took, you know, full advantage of the opportunity, though, you know, winning several battles in arguably the most famous of the conflict in New Orleans. And he got everything he wanted in, you know, beating back the British from contesting U.S. independence and further displacing indigenous groups further westward. And on top of that, he was glorified throughout the country and received a congressional, you know, gold medal in his victory in New Orleans alone. So even after the fighting of that war stopped, it was only getting started now for Jackson as he was awarded command of the southern half of the U.S. Army to take in the battle against the Seminoles in 1816. Is any of this, like, history surprising to you, or are you just kind of, like, in for the in for the ride here? I'm in for the ride. It's not surprising that white America was all in on killing Native Americans. Right, and, you know, Jackson was only ordered by, you know, President Monroe and the Secretary of War, John C. Yeah, Congress. and we and we cover Monroe and, and him being a ruthless a-hole, essentially, so... well. Yeah, we were we were back and forth. I mean, Monroe, I, I actually haven't heard those episodes in a while. I'm not even sure where we were, but like, yeah, yeah, he he was definitely an expansionist, like you know most of the people um, at his time. But yeah, you know, this was um, you know, his relationship to to Jackson in this period. You know, he essentially used John C. Calhoun to make orders to. You know, beat back the Seminoles in their border disputes with U.S. residents across the northern Florida border. And, you know, Jackson, however, you know, would unilaterally made, you know, he would go ahead to make the decision to go well beyond just fighting on the border, you know, and ended up capturing pretty much the entire panhandle region of Florida while being absolutely brutal to the opposition. Again, this really isn't a surprise in hindsight, you know as he was getting everything he'd hoped for since, you know, befriending Aaron Burr 10 years earlier. And now that he had the stat, now that he had like a distinguished military background to provide additional leverage, he made a calculated gamble to force Florida out of Spanish control, you know. And he did come close to losing his command when he decided to execute two British diplomats who he had accused of working with the Seminoles as it, you know, put them in put them in Rome administration in a tense place with the British in his, you know, cabinet, you know, and debated whether or not they would punish Jackson for using the military to go well beyond the objectives of the war itself. But, you know, ironically, John Quincy Adams came to Jackson's rescue, as he was also interested in taking Florida, but was able to do so in negotiations after Jackson had exploited Spain's military weaknesses all over their colony. And so Spain went on to sell Florida to the U.S. in 1819. And Jackson would again be rewarded for his brutality as he was appointed as the first territorial governor of Florida in 1821 to oversee the transition of power from Spain to the U.S. He finally resigned in 1824 to prepare himself to make a run for the presidency. Wow, so we were discussing DeSantis. And here we go. Here his predecessor, a former uh, U- uh, Florida governor, now running for president. 
yeah, people don't actually ever. I've never heard of him being like the Florida guy before, but I guess he kind of was. He was like, the where first. was he born? Did I miss that? I'm sorry. He's he's born in like the Carolinas, um, but Carolina. like really, like he's a Tennessee guy. Like he's known as like uh, okay. a guy from Tennessee. But yeah, this is you know we're pretty much all caught up in filling in the gaps of Jackson's political rise, and I think there's like a lot of ways to characterize it, right? You you could say that he carved an unconventional path for himself and willed the country into achieving his political goals without, you know, without having to make any compromises. But you could also say that he massacred thousands of people to further establish white supremacy over North America. And, you know, both, yeah, both statements have some truth to them, right? So I think these two ways of depicting Jackson are a bit of where we're at today, whenever his legacy comes into the public consciousness. You know, many historians can tell you it's obvious he was a smart, strategic, and effective leader, but do we really want to showcase the man because he was effective and ignore the and just ignore the values that he stood for? You know, I I think it's pretty obvious that the answer should be no. And so the fact that he, you know, would we still have him on like, you know, our currency and so many cities and landmarks are named after him should be concerned that our communities continue to celebrate him in that way. Yeah, you know, the 1824 election, you know, if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you'll know that we covered the 1824 election a couple times already in the JQA episode. And I've never heard of it. Probably the Monroe one as well, we did, but it's the... It's have the infamous, we done Monroe? What do you mean have we done? Are I'm you kidding. You I'm, it's, a, it's a joke. No, but... <laughs> okay, sorry. I feel like we've, we've brought up this election a lot. It's the infamous corrupt bargain election. And the only thing I want to add on top of the content from those episodes is that the timing of this election is perfect for Jackson. You know, we've, we've covered so many presidents who we've determined just came into power at the wrong time and suffered, you know, through a very unlucky turn of events. Um, you know, Jackson really had none of that happen to him in his political career. Lucky us. The timing of uh, his political rise and military career was, you know, perfect for the goals he had for himself and the nation. You know, this election, though he loses, again, is still just as perfect for him in this timing. You know, it's the first election that had just one political party competing for the presidency. And you may think that wouldn't help Jackson, but it does because it gives him a free shot to contest for the presidency without having to bow down to a political party in any way. Democratic Republicans didn't have to nominate one candidate to face another party's candidate. It was essentially a free-for-all. And so the other candidates in 1824, you know, also didn't take Jackson seriously at first. And they miscalculated that the American public cared more about if candidates had a diverse background of experience as a candidate. Well, not even, sorry, they mi- I'm going to repeat that because I misunderstood the way I was trying to. <laughs> <laughs> um miscalculating that the American public cared more about if candidates had a diverse background of political experience, you know, as a cabinet member and diplomat. You know, at this time, this was a formula for getting into office, not through spotlighting your military achievements. At the same time, though, the, the wars in the U.S. stuck in the minds of Americans, you know, much more than John Adams and Henry Clay's negotiating skills with foreign diplomats. And so there was, you know, also the fact that regular people had a lot more to choose from in being able to identify with him than any other candidate. They knew he hated the aristocracy, even though he was, you know, now a very wealthy man. 
and the British. So did you know most of the country, and you know at least in some respects, you know he was in favor of continuing to expand the country westward and drive Native Americans out of the existing states. And again, so was most of the country. So he was the first president to you know also be born west of the Appalachian Mountains, and you know he so he didn't really sound like the, the typical politician either. He could label himself a political outsider. And so all these themes, which were new to American politics in the 1820s, they still resonate as appealing qualities in candidates today. And so you could argue the modern candidate really all stems from, you know, Jackson's appeal. And, you know, still keeping in mind he did horrible things, his candidacy, his candidacy still leaves a very significant legacy for American politics and how to appeal to a wide voting base. I mean, do you it's not see wild, that? right, that yeah. even, even back then, the, the trope of he's, he's not a normal politician, still, like, what, what, what is this, you know, 200 plus years later, and we're still selling yeah. the same old hamburger to everybody, and they just keep eating it up like it's something new? Well, that's, like, symbolic of, like, Jackson's power here. Like, he invented, like, the... I don't know, like the the candidate that everybody like hates, but also like wants to be president, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. That's like your that's like your major theme of this whole podcast. Of no, like yeah, it repeats itself. Yep, sadly, right? I think that's one of the most frustrating aspects of actually like listening to you being forced to repeat yourself because things just keep happening and you're like well yep this you know tariffs or you know uh, and then they were bribed and well actually they went back on their promises and it's like oh this is the same same thing over and over again huh i don't know i thought that you would be more enthusiastic about his little rise there like in in terms of uh Him, like, being famous when he was young. Like, we don't hear about young Andrew Jackson ever, I feel like. We always hear about, like, really, um, like, President Andrew Jackson. But I mean, but it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to be, like, impressed when your fame is you killed a lot of people that were just trying to defend their land, you know? <laughs> right. I feel like we haven't gotten to that point in the podcast, though, right? Like, but the yeah. only the only aspect that I truly didn't know about him, and I was surprised, is like he has this like um, um, John McCain side side quest to him, except you know it's a little more brutal in terms of like being in the encampment and um, being a, almost like a prisoner of war type thing. You know, it's brutal, like watching your entire family die. Um, that changes you as a human being, so. I'm not trying to look for justifications, but maybe that's why he's so ruthless and willing to kill so many people. Yeah, and you know, I don't even think that he would like think of himself as someone who was like especially um, like averse to just like committing murder whenever it suited him. Like, I just think that he like thought that he was a man of his time, right? Like that he was like a, a regular person. And that's why he hated the aristocratic class, right? Because it, they didn't resemble, like, the way that he thought that, you know, you should go about the world in that sense. So he's kind of like, yeah, I mean, he's very new to the political scene in terms of having a president who isn't, like, a, 
aristocratic type. Like, even though, like, we like the Adamses for, like, being the only presidents to not have slaves in the first, like, 100 years of American history, they both were pretty bougie, right? They're both, like, pretty, like, super educated, (laughs) super, like, you know, out of touch with, you know, what a normal person lived through, especially John Quincy Adams. And so, yeah, it's it's a weird thing to contend with because... You could see how, like, this is like the first candidate, like, where regular people might feel some kind of I can have a, I can have a beer with him. Yeah, yeah. There you go. What other presidents like that? Maybe Jefferson a little bit, but I don't want to. I don't want to have a beer with any any president. You know, I don't. Any president? You want to have a beer? No. With I'll, I'll, I may want to have a beer with Teddy, but just because of his entire life's history is so fucking wild that. That's the type of human being you want to be sitting next to when you're just pounding down liquid bread and he's just telling, oh, did I ever tell you that time when I fought a bear? And you're like, what? Wait, okay. Another <laughs> round. Another round. We need another round. And you're just like walking out of the bar at 5 a.m. and you don't remember half the stories. So that's good because the next time you're drinking with him, all the stories sound like new because you've blacked out of listening like that's the man that you want to be drinking that's the only one that i would drink that was pretty funny (laughs) yeah no what what do you want me to drink with lbj and then he's like forcing me to go into the bathroom to watch him take a shit while he's telling the story because that's like his kink like his power trip no neil we need to leave all this in (laughs) george hw bush That'd be, no. a, that'd be a weird one. No, it'd just be very dark. No. Too dark that'd to you? Very dark, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to think of like, I'm trying to think of every president now just to see who would be another fun one. John Tyler would be kind of like fascinating. <laughs> John Tyler? No. He <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have a beer with me, man. He would be sacrificing, <laughs> sacrificing me in front of the lawn. He would be okay. segregating that bar so quickly before I, goes, I could grab my first beer. All right, fair enough. And his okay. wife is in the corner having a premonition about me. No, no, that's too much, too okay. much stuff. Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe you're you're right, and just Teddy might be the only appropriate one. Who knows? Yeah. I can just, I I can just know like all the people you wouldn't want to have a beer with, right? Like Wilson, you wouldn't really want to have a beer with him. I'm betting. Um, I don't know. Bush, maybe Taff and just have a Taff beer and just blow his mind that. His entire legacy is boiled down to a figure of him in a bathtub. <laughs> That's kind of sad, though. That's pretty sad. I was <laughs> and him just sad. drinking that sad beer, just realizing, wow, this is what my life is now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cartoon for a brewing company in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's not right, though, because he does have a, like that distinction of like, oh, I'm a justice and a president. But yeah, I know, but I'm trying to be funny, Neil. No, but no one, but I, like you said, I think everybody, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I know him because I've seen the bathtub figurine thing. Yeah. And being stuck in the bathtub. Like, that's, like, every American is going to, or at least, like, you know, that's going to be what he's remembered for. You're right. And he, I don't even know if that happened. So that's wild. There you go. Those are my uh, top of year moments. Let's back to old hickory. We've already gone through how Jackson lost in 1824. You know, Martin Van Buren helped to mold a new political party around Jackson in the four years leading up to the 1828 election. And so Jackson would then go on to win that election handily and become the nation's seventh president. And so here we are. You know, what does the Jackson 
presidency look like now that he's, you know, almost in full control of the nation's future? You know, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking it's probably very similar, you know, to how he conducted himself through his military career in producing chaos, you'd be on the right track. You know, what if I told you, Yusuf, that before the nation had a civil war over the issue of slavery, that it came somewhat close to having one in Jackson's presidency over the issue of the tariff? Oh, man. I feel like we've been, the last few episodes, we've been so far away from this time. Well, we weren't because we discussed the dead presidents, but they just died before they could complain about the tariffs. (laughs) That I honestly forgot how frustrating it is to listen to (laughs) the entire scope outside of, you know, us dissecting the the humanity, the, the human behind the actions and and the the times and how it like could have set the country in a real positive direction if a, a real good human being was in charge of the country back then and actually laid a good foundation. All of them had the same controversy in that they either didn't set tariffs or they did set tariffs. And that's like the biggest controversy of the time within the within their political atmosphere. Yeah. So what's what's up with Andrew Jackson and the tariffs? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just laughing. Um, you know, that's right. You know, we can never escape the issue of the tariff in the 1800s. But you know, given that it's always an issue, right? With the, especially with all these like post-founder presidents, it it actually became less surprising to me that you know the country would be literally you know would literally be tempted to violently fight itself over this issue. Um, and so. You know, the first this first issue we're covering of Jackson's presidency on the tariff would come to be known as the nullification crisis. And it all went down through the state of South Carolina. Somehow, Yusef, Andrew Jackson ended up with the same vice president as John Quincy Adams. And, you know, this is a guy we really haven't talked about much on this podcast, but... Wait, he switched teams? He was like, right. he jumped ship? He was like, I know I'm the... He's he was an active, right? He was the active vice president yes. at the time. Yes. He's an active vice president and also running mate of the other guy. Yes. How does yes. that even work? How do, I, how do you I, openly cheat on your girl and nobody calls you out on it? Yeah. No, I mean it, it it's it's really weird. Politics in this day is kinda it's kinda weird like that, I'm gonna say. I this was never really this I haven't seen this as a trivia question before like like what president or what vice president like was acting as a a vice president but surfing on a ticket against the ticket that he was already on he's like that administration (laughs) sucks like that vice president is horrible I'm gonna be a better (laughs) vice president when I get into office you'll see right you're running against yourself isn't that kind of weird why is that not talked about more? That's a very fun, <laughs> fun fact. Wow. <laughs> but yeah. That's yeah. honestly so weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe right now <laughs> that he ran against himself. So again, maybe we should have brought him up earlier. But isn't, guy... isn't that insider trading though? He has insider information about Quincy. I mean, it's not trading, right? Like, I know, it's a joke. It's a joke, man. It's a joke. <laughs> I know, I know, but I just meant like in like even in the figurative sense. Like, I mean, I guess there's not there's no rule saying you can't run against yourself, right? That's not imprinted on like Article One of the Constitution. 
He's like airing out all the dirty down there that he was privy to because we all thought it was his vice president, but he's like, nope. Actually, I've been pulling the long con this entire time. I only ran for vice president to be able to run for vice president later on. Yeah. I don't know someone that bad who wants to just be vice president all the time, even for different teams, you know? Like, I thought that was supposed to be a shitty office, but this guy... Every time every time a new political party is formed, he's like, hey, guys, look at my resume. (laughs) (laughs) I got references. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, so this is John C. Calhoun. Um, which is a two two party vice president guy. That's what he is on our podcast now. Um, and former House rep from South Carolina, he was actually a Secretary of War for Monroe, so he's got a pretty big pedigree. Also, presidential candidate in eighteen twenty four. So he tried he tried for the office, realized he couldn't <laughs> get it, but he he did make one attempt. And he's so, just addicted to campaigning like Trump. He just loves rallies and he loves. Uh, saying how how amazing he'll be at the job. He just doesn't want to do the job, but he's like campaigning is his jam. Yeah, and at this point, you know, a president hadn't even died yet, so that wasn't even a thing either. He's like, yeah, presidents don't really die. Um, Then we get to that, obviously, with Harrison. Um, But yeah, he just switched teams in the middle of Adams' presidency, and this was mainly due to, you know, where he stood on the American system, a term that came during the era to describe the approach to federal government, you know, the sorry, the approach the federal government took to encourage national economic development. It's not complicated at all, you know, it essentially just pairs two policies of high tariffs on internationally important goods to protect American industries. And to use federal subsidies to fund infrastructure projects in the state to improve the transportation of goods and services. And so Southerners like Calhoun took issue with this economic framework because they believed high tariffs took money from the cotton trade in the South and, distri- and distributed it to the North for their industries. As they had, you know, a much deeper infrastructure in place for trade than, you know, the, what was being established in the South. And so, you know, Jackson actually sympathized with this rationale, you know, but he has, you know, more of a moderate stance on the issue, believing that the system should stay in place, but that tariff should be lowered across the board. And that's exactly what happened in 1932. You know, the American system lives on, but a bill is passed in Congress that lowered tariff rates. You know, this doesn't satisfy Calhoun and South Carolina in the slightest. And they take... Yeah, he looks fucking wild, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Calhoun looks like a man you do not want to cross. If I run into him in an alley, it would be like, I'm sorry about the terrorists. I'm so sorry about the terrorists. Yeah, he looks... He looks... He looks, he looks like Willem Dafoe on steroids. Like, he looks wild. Yes. Yeah, but I, that, that's like... I think the only picture I've seen of him, I don't want to see any other pictures of him. <laughs> it's just the first thing you see on Google, if you, um, if you Google John C. Calhoun's name, just... And just Morning. staring to his eyes. Yeah, it's a, it's not, it's not pleasant. Um, back to the American system. All right, and so, 1832 tariffs are lowered a little bit, but this does not satisfy Calhoun and South Carolinians in the slightest, as they take the very radical step in arguing that, you know, they, you know, individual states, that is, acting through like you know a formal convention, 
could use their authority to, you know, declare to reject that is, or you know, declare a law null. Um, this is why it's called a nullification crisis. But they could, could declare a federal law that they determined was in violation of the Constitution as pretty much like they weren't going to follow it or it didn't exist. And so, after the tariff was lowered. South Carolina's legislator passed measures to block the collection of federal custom revenues at the state's ports and to defend the state with arms against federal incursion. So this is like pretty it's pretty serious. Like they're not messing around, like like recognizing that this is a this is a law in their state. And so Jackson was pissed. His vice president was adding fuel to the fire, the guy who switched teams, and actively advocating for the state to defy the federal government in which he had filled one of the most major offices of. This was all happening in the election year as well, and so Calhoun was obviously, you know, not going to join Jackson on the ticket in 1832. The new VP would be Van Buren, and Calhoun would go on to res- he would go on to resign from the vice presidency months before his term ended. The He's only person- not a good employee. <laughs> He's really not a good partner in this time. <laughs> no. He quits point- and he runs against you. And he betrays, openly betrays you constantly. How does he, how did, how did he become so popular amongst the, I feel amongst like that's the politicians? Like South, like a South Carolina thing. They just, they were their own entity, right? Because wow. they're the first, the first state to succeed from the Union, too, in 19, or sorry, 1861. So, it's a South Carolinians. I don't know. I've never been in the state. I don't know what's going on over there. I'm not sure if it's like that today, but dynamic people. So two vice presidents in history have resigned from office, and that's Calhoun and Spiro Agnew in 1973, which we haven't we haven't talked about Nixon yet, but that was his vice president for a bit. And so um, our boy Henry Clay takes on Jackson for 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 reelection. <sighs> of course, he's beaten pretty soundly in 1832, and what is his second failed attempt at of many <laughs> at winning the presidency, but. Of course, he still does the dirty work of ending the crisis in 1833, as Jackson is threatening to bring an army to South Carolina and hang Calhoun. Um, you know, he found a compromise, Clay, that is, that would reduce further, sorry, would further reduce the tariff in a series of stages over nine years. So Calhoun agreed to, you know, this new reduction, and that it would be reasonable. And South Carolina ended their push for nullification. It's just, you know, Henry Clay doing what Henry Clay does, you know. He saves a nation from killing one another, but you know, would never make him president. So the nullification conflict was a pretty chaotic, chaotic domestic crisis. And you would think Jackson would probably want to maintain some stability now that it was over. But, you know, you'd be wrong if you made that assumption. Further chaos would follow with the issue of rechartering the you second know, page. You know what they say, Neil, when you assume. Can, yeah, I know what they say. See? Yeah. Right. Shouldn't assume because we have a Bank of the United States issue. And like the tariff, this is an issue we've talked about quite a lot. Yeah, it's the banks. Why do we want banks? And now I feel like everybody knew what they were talking about back then because now if a wind blows just in the right amount of speed, one bank collapses. Okay. But not the national bank, right? So that's the whole point. It's like we still have state no. banks here. They're the yeah. national bank. So like I said, there's not really a diverse set of issues anytime, you know, in the 19th century. It's not, you know, again, 
it can get boring in that sense. It's more so recycling of the same old stuff, even more so than what you, Seth's cynical mind, thinks of, mm. you know, in terms of it being recyclable. Because, you know, 19th century politics is really, really recyclable. But, but to Jackson's credit, he makes these issues much more entertaining than most presidents, at least, I would say. And so to quickly recap, you know, where we're at in the, on the National Bank, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, gets the institution in place. Thomas Jefferson dismantles it in his, in his presidency, advocating for the federal government to have as little inter- intervention in the economy as possible. I'm not going to waste my shot. Right. That's a good summary of Hamilton for anybody who hasn't watched and he, yet. And then he gets shot. Okay. <laughs> you know who didn't waste his shot? Burr. Oh, my gosh. Burn! You heard that joke somewhere. No, I just literally just thought about it. Okay. Oh, my God. And I've been making fun of that song for two years now, Neil. Two years on this podcast. And now I make that joke. Now I make that joke. Ah. I'm so happy we're recording. Because it's going to live now forever in perpetuity until the internet and the world collapse. Oh, yeah. I hope someone picks it up. I don't think I've heard that before. Um, <laughs> I thought you stole it, but um, wow! You know, see, maybe that will make you a ton of money. Slander on my name. <laughs> um, okay, but the War of eighteen twelve happens, and President Madison, the guy after Jefferson in office, realizes not having a national bank is a disaster and being able to produce funds for things like wars. So he charters a second national bank at the end of his presidency, even though you know, he's a vice president for Jefferson, taking a very different opposite approach while he's president. So these guys they tend to change their mind a lot. It's not just Calhoun. Um, flash forward to Jackson's presidency, and the bank is no longer a controversial entity in the government. There hadn't been any economic issues in more than a decade, and it's done its job at stabilizing U.S. currency and putting care in the loans it's producing across the board for infrastructure projects. Jackson, though, was stuck in his belief that the bank itself, like Jefferson believed, was unconstitutional and made it clear that he intended to see it die when its charter expired in 1836. The bank president, his name is Nicholas Biddle, tried tried to talk Jackson down and when that didn't work, he asked Congress to rechart the bank early in 1832, just before the election uh, for Jackson's um, incumbency. So he thought that would force Jackson to rechart the bank in fears of losing re-election if he refused. Congress passed the bill, sent it for Jackson to sign, but he had a better handle on the American public than Congress did, calling Biddle's bluff and vetoing the bill. He still elected in a landslide in that election, which showed proof to Jackson that he had a strong mandate to end the Bank of the United States. So with that mandate, Jackson took things a step further. He didn't simply wait for 1836 to come around. He forced the bank to die even sooner. By 1833, he intended to withdraw all deposits from the National Bank and move them into state (laughs) banks. The problem was he didn't have that authority. His secretary of the treasury, William John Duane, did have that authority. Jackson ordered Duane to carry out the removal of deposits, and he refused. So, of course, he fired him and made his attorney general, Roger Taney, his replacement. 
And then he went on to execute the removal, giving all of his money to state banks that never had this type of responsibility before. And we're not regulated like the National Bank to protect how money flowed into the economy. So, of course, you know, this is clearly all hypocritical of Jackson because his arguments of a national bank being unconstitutional were followed up with him taking unconstitutional action to bring it down because he didn't have the authority to shut it, the ba- you know, shut down the bank early. Much of Congress, though, was made up of Democrats at this point, so they couldn't really unite to take a proportionate response. And this is essentially how the Whig Party was formed. Henry Clay and his followers had enough of Jackson abusing presidential powers and formed a party around counter- countering Jackson's destabilizing presence to the federal government that had a long run of stability from the 1820s onward. Any any like notes on that, Yusef? Or you just no? It's you know? awesome when people just abuse power. So I don't know. No notes. This Rebo is awesome, and also like it felt like a very um, modern move as well of just firing somebody when they don't want to. They don't want to do illegal stuff for you. Right. You're getting the sense that this guy is a trend center, right? Like, I tried to, <laughs> tried to say that early on in the present, or sorry, in the episodes. Like, this is, uh, we see this a lot today. The last, the last issue I want to highlight in Jackson's presidency is his signing of the Indian Removal Act in, in 1830. Oh, and, he just keeps getting some bangers. In. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, this is an issue that really isn't difficult to understand, but it is somewhat hard to describe Jackson's mindset with the outcomes he truly wants with signing this bill. Obviously, you know, it's clear that he believed Native American culture was inferior to white culture, and that the states that had been ratified should ultimately belong to white settlers by the time he's in office. At the same time, Native American tribes weren't unfamiliar to him. He grew in he grew up in an area that had you know you know much more encounters with Native Americans than in places like the Northeast Coast. When he was in the military, for example, he was constantly negotiating new land agreements with tribes, either through intimidation and threats or vibe or bribes. So Jackson doesn't necessarily want to go to war with tribes, but he does want to drive them completely out of the east. By the time he does get into office, many tribes that still remain in the southeast in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee were starting to see the writing on the wall that they were all going to be forced out at some point. Even as some tribes, you know, like the Cherokee, for example, adopted white customs. You know, they had their own written language. They adopted a constitution for their own self-governance. And they even had their own newspaper. None of those efforts to appear more legitimate in the eyes of white people, unfortunately, would save them from being forcefully removed from their lands. And Jackson's advocacy of the act, you know, was, you know, that the forced removal would be carried out humanely. You know, he, this is kind of like the facade that people try to defend Jackson with in some sense, because the act did promise fair payment for Native tribes, you know, their, their land and their goods safe transportation to the West and, you know, resources upon arrival, and also the protection of the property of those who, you know, chose to remain in the lands, but under state jurisdiction rather than like, you know, their tribal jurisdiction. These safeguards collapsed under the pressure from the fact that, like, you know, the people carrying out these removals of tribes into Western lands were 
people who are still trying to make a buck. You know, they're contractors, they're traders, um, they were, you know, people who were just trespassing still onto their territory. Like, it was not an honest, genuine bill in the sense that the federal government didn't actually, you know, meet their end of the bargain with giving them the guarantees that they promised these tribes who decided to leave without even, like, fighting, right? Um, and so it's just all shitty altogether because, you know, like, they're already making this huge sacrifice and then, you know, they were lied to, you know, even, yeah, it's just really sad to try to expand beyond that. But, you know, you know, the, the coincidence in history, when you uh, told me that we were going to do uh, Jackson, I accidentally clicked on, on 1767 instead of the year that he was elected. And I was just reading through the history. And I found that the on the year that he was born, the last, uh, the Indian tribe called Timukua becomes extinct because of the death of the last speaking member of their language. And they were located in Florida and they were expelled by the Spanish government to Cuba. So it's like he 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 is known for expelling Indians. He is known as being the first governor of Florida. So it's like kind of like it's just weird how history has those coincidences. Yeah, yeah, and this is again like a unsatisfying sort of a direction to turn the pot. I mean, this is like a guy who's obviously got a lot of baggage in even in modern society. And the fact that, again, he was still celebrated is, uh, you know, really annoying when you go through a podcast like this or you're studying or you're trying to put together an episode about this guy that you hear about growing up being like sort of a glorified president. And then you kind of have to just like, oh, we're going to have to talk about this guy and (laughs) think about all like the people who suffered because he didn't really have any sympathy towards these groups of people. Like, and I guess that, you know, that's just how we were at this time. Like, I don't really like to, like, just specifically focus on Jackson for it. Like, he's certainly, I think, a man of his time. He's not someone who's, like, unique in the sense that, like, other people didn't want these outcomes, right? Um, he's unique in the sense that he's able to, like, be charismatic and that he has, like, you know, a lot of, like, strong leadership qualities that can, like, carry him to a presidency that's kind of, you know, unprecedented for his time. But yeah, like there's, you know, it's hard to show appreciation for that when he does stuff like this at the same time. Just finish up. On I mean, the- even if you wanted to just ignore the ruthless massacre of the tribes, like just the fact that he abused his power through that issue of the banks is just a major red flag of what type of president he was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, he, again, like, willed himself into the office through offices of being able to just, like, be a one-man show, right? Like, that's what the, I mean, being a commander in the military, and, yeah, like, he did spend some more, he spent a little bit of time in the Senate, and, like, from 1823, 1825, but that was more for selfish reasons in being able to, like, look more distinguished to make a presidential run. It wasn't to actually, like, do any good in Congress in that sense. And so... To finish up on the Indian Removal Act, you know, tribes that refused to comply with the act were forced into coercion by the U.S. military. And 
then were rounded up and forced to march out of their homes. And this process would continue into Van Buren's presidency, ending with the Cherokee suffering through what is now known as the Trail of Tears. And so Jackson finishes his presidency, I mean, really leaving the U.S. in economic turmoil. You know, the state banks with all the federal deposits cause an economic crash that dooms Van Buren's presidency in the Panic of 1837. Um, and so, yeah, because, I mean, we can get more on that if you want, but, you know, there are unregulated institution that, you know, decides to use the money for other ends, and the U.S. is expanding westward during this time, and so land speculation is a big deal, and so they kind of just make... And run the economy into the ground by investing too much in new land and the housing market. And so that's a whole other kind of, again, like <laughs> story. But at the end of the day, you could easily conclude that if he keeps the National Bank, right, then this economic collapse doesn't happen. He actually makes his party stronger because Van Buren doesn't have a terrible presidency. And so, like, yeah. And Van like, Buren sucks. I mean, I thought that Van Buren has some qualities, but you weren't very uh, um, excited about his episode at all. So. Not at all. I mean, could you mention one that I've been excited for in a while? <laughs> like a president that you really liked in the past? No, yeah. I guess not. Grant. Grant was really like. Maybe um, Grant, yeah. I didn't mind uh, Dwight D. It's just, like, it's just very frustrating. Uh, about his stance with the LGBTQ community and his willingness to just drop bombs. Um, so I cannot fully go behind him, but I didn't like in terms of him being a good leader, he was a good leader in that sense. Yeah. But I mean, this this is a bit of a bittersweet episode, right? Because like this is kind of the end. In of what this- sense, Neil? Like, this is the last time that we really get to talk about Henry Clay being, like, a main protagonist. Oh. Dude, that- honestly, I, I'm happy that we're going to stop talking about it because every time you mention his name, my heart breaks just a little bit. Just a, just a smidge, my heart goes, oh. Because that's, that's, you know, that's when when people tell you, kids, follow your dreams anything is possible they don't think about what andrew clay went through he followed his dreams he really followed his dreams and nothing was possible but he came so close i mean like i think jackson wright is like the main is really the main protagonist in all of the post-founder era and i feel like you didn't have much to say about him like he's a pretty influential guy but you're like pretty i feel like we've talked we've talked about him so so much that (laughs) I'm I'm old Jackson out. Really? Yeah. But this is like this is a big deal. This is a guy who like really. I mean, if you want to look at 2023 America, he definitely has his uh, legacy. He's on the five dollar bill, right? That's that's twenty. 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 Yeah. Twenty. The five is Lincoln. Yeah. I'm still thinking about Lincoln. I guess. (laughs) Right. No. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's just that I guess I I've never. I've never attributed uh, his name with that much weight. I feel like other names, at least in my head, are like heavier. So when we were in those episodes, I guess I was more enthralled in it in that sense that you know I wanted to have more to say. 
but also since he was so influential and so and and dipped his hands in so many of the other presidents that we've covered i feel like we've always have talked about him so it's weird that this is finally his episode because i feel like we've been talking about him for a while now yeah well damn i guess i guess we should have done this sooner then no yeah. it's not at all, not at all i feel like it's it's a good cherry on, on the jackson sunday that we've been building for uh four seasons now yeah I mean, are you going to feel the way about Washington when we get to Washington, though? Cause I feel like no, because I feel like we haven't actually talked that much about Washington in terms of, like, the political m movings and the betrayals and whatever he set up and who influenced... Like, outside of Hamilton that we've talked about and and yeah. um, John Adams, when we talked about John Adams, we, we kind of briefly graced what, it, what the, his differences between him and uh washington yeah am i am i misremembering right because john adams oh, is the second oh, president and we we kind of graced what what was the main differences between them yeah but don't you think it's wild that like jackson had like an aaron burr friendship and like again he's the seventh president and like washington and hamilton are like so close you know and that's the guy who kills hamilton it's weird that like how much more like how much closer these guys were like between presidencies like who was six presidents ago like like gerald ford or something or card I, I mean like maybe it was carter no, i think it was gerald ford like there's no him and biden have such a separation right or at least like him, yeah. even him and obama because obama's pretty young like like think about like obama's six six presidents before him like that's like lbj that's wild you know like you don't have you don't think about these guys all like knowing each other, which is weird. Yeah, but also uh, it's the fact that they were also young back then. They were also yeah. um, involved in politics from like 21, 22 onward. You can't just so, do that. Everybody. Yeah, now by the time like some of them actually became presidents, they're like in their 50s, 60s, and you're like, oh yeah, I know, I knew that guy when he was in his 20s. Yeah. I kind of wish that we had a bit more um, generational diversity in in our politics. I feel like we're pretty heavily skewed. Um, and that's not me trying to be, you know, ageist. It's just me wanting a little bit more representation. Well, hey, man, um, we're getting there. We have we have Latinos. We have um, Muslims. We have con artists that fake their entire resume. So we're representing every aspect of our society. So eventually we're going to have young people in there as well. Yeah. I think as long as they're younger, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that's got to be... That's gotta we change. have a crossfitter, a crossfitter that believes in QAnon. You know, we're, we're really just showcasing everything that is America. Man, your your cynical side is really on level ten today. I will say. Hey, man, I've been I've, I'm it's it's ten thirty, and I just closed my work laptop. <laughs> what what do you want from me? Yeah, this this is America right there. That's that's quite. That's yeah, a, call me Childish Gambino <laughs> right now because this is America. <laughs> okay, well that that is my that is a, a nice ending to this podcast. So, Neil, now that we've reached the end, the conclusion of the Jackson Sunday that we've been building since the early episodes, since the foundation of our nation, 
Andrew Barbecue Mystique Jackson. Is he? Does he have a chance against your favorite president of all time, legally binding? No. Helena Helena Cage match winner, WWE yeah. heavyweight, Dwight D LGBTQ. No, thank you. Yeah. I'm changing his nickname because I'm tired of saying it the same way all the time. No, that's good. I mean, I I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about who Eisenhower's gonna go down. Who he may go down to later, because like Jackson obviously is not gonna win this. There's a lot of things that he can like be. Um, if you had like if you like try to pick out certain qualities of presidents, he could be at the top of the lab lists, right? Um, mm-hmm. Best presidents list. He shouldn't be anywhere near there, and I hope that as best would. <laughs> I mean, I just hope that like 21st century people who are like making these like are supposed to be like very credible lists don't put him in the top 20. Who's better, know? Cherry Wood or Hickory Wood? You know that that's a, that's an argument that we can really make. Sure, sure, but like or you know oh like out of all the tall presidents. We have a lot of tall presidents. Well, actually, no, we have some good tall presidents, too. Think about Washington and LBJ. But then we got Jefferson and Jackson in there. They're both tall. and so they. How tall them. is Jackson? I think Jackson's like 6'1", six 6'2". Six so, like... He must have been a freak back, back then, right? People yeah. weren't well, tall. Yeah, I think that people really like, like today, people really like tall people back then, too, when they usually got everything they wanted. Yeah. So. Tall <laughs> um, people get everything they want, huh? hundred percent. You know how. You know why they, they. You know why they get everything they want because they can reach higher. I mean, well, people. I feel like the the physical act of looking up at someone or looking up, like it makes you look up to them. It's kind of cruel how biology does that to you. You don't even want to. <laughs> but if you're looking up to someone, you feel like they have like a this wisdom card over you automatically because you're doing like a weird act that you're. No, I just, I just talk, I just <laughs> talk to their nipples, and I assert <laughs> command. <laughs> yeah, I, I do a reverse Uno card on them and I'll just tuck directly to their nipples and force them to lower themselves to my eye level. Ah. I've never tried that, but only just done the <laughs> Yeah. Try that, but don't don't try that if if it's a female that is taller than you. <laughs> that's not the way to go in that sense. <laughs> okay. Okay, noted. Um yeah, but all that to say is that like again, he's he does. He's a unique president. Like, there's no doubt. He's more interesting than a lot of presidents too, um, especially more recent ones we covered, right? But and more and more interesting than uh, like 99% of the pre-Civil War presidents. Right, right. I mean, this is like this is the pre-Civil War guy to to if you're going to learn about American history, you can only pick seven presidents or even five presidents. You probably, Andrew Jackson's probably going to be on your list. Um, so there's that. But you know. Again, this is there's no way that you can guy who I mean he, he had a Wilsonian type of like power hunger to him where he just really yeah. wanted to have full control. And so we don't you know, we don't we're not all about that on this podcast, and so we're gonna give him the L against Eisenhower. Wow. Yeah. I'm so tired, man. <laughs> okay. You're so tired of <laughs> You should have saved. You should have saved Dwight D to the end if you were gonna make me say his name for 25 episodes <laughs> in a row, Neil. That's just unfair of you. It wasn't cool. You did it on purpose. This is like this is a this is torture. Call me Jackson. Tor- I'm in the camp. 
it would be pretty cruel if I like all the way to the end I had eyes and then just knock him off in the last and in the last (laughs) (laughs) Uh, at that point now that Dwight D no LGBT no LGBT for me I'm I'm testing out different ways to say it okay survived another match I guess who is he gonna go up against now that we're almost at the finish line you know, someone that, again, many people probably, I don't know if they knew was president or just hearing this name for the first time in our lives, but we're going to get Millard Fillmore, of all Ooh. people, up next week. I've been waiting for him for so long. I'm so excited because how do you become the most powerful human being on planet with the name Mill? Mill? Can I say it again? Mill? Millard. Millard. Yeah. This is my friend Millard. He's going (laughs) to be the president. Okay, sure. Good luck with that guy. But he made it. So we'll we'll find out how he did on the next episode of Unprecedented. I don't know why we became like Dragon Ball Z at the end right there. (laughs) I don't know what happened. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I'm jumping to the next episode right there. So, preview, yeah, yeah, uh, sk- skip the intro for the next episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for listening, subscribing. Please share. I'm super punch drunk today, so sorry if, if it was all over the place, but I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to exploring Millard. Bye. Bye.